I used to be a scuba instructor in Bali, Indonesia. Groups could book me for a casual lesson or for like a week's worth of diving where they could earn a provisional diving license. So this one group books me. They're a mixed group in their early 20s, couples and friends. Good people. Silver spoons galore, but I'm not one to judge. Our first activity was underwater walking. Now, I had never tried underwater walking since it was relatively new at the time, but I'm keen to try it. So we pile into a little boat and take a short trip out towards the mothership. Now, this is just a naval term for a larger boat that smaller ones like ours can work from, but we go one step further to justify this, having spray-painted one of those huge gray alien heads onto the hull. It looked awesome, and naturally the kids loved it. Underwater walking itself was similar to the time I did snuba, scuba plus snorkeling equals snuba, in the Caribbean, in that the oxygen tanks float up on the surface of the water instead of being on the diver's back. The other major difference to regular diving is that instead of having a scuba mask to breathe out of, we had these big old sci-fi looking helmets on. I mean, they looked like they were props from that old Lost in Space show that used to be on TV. I went first, and the procedure was pretty simple. I hung onto the ladder with the majority of my body in the water. They placed a small foam rubber ring on my head to cushion the helmet, and then they finally put the helmet on. The second that it was on my body, it felt like its weight was forcing me to the bottom of the ocean. It was kind of scary because I went down pretty fast, which caused the pressure to build up quickly. I made sure to swallow and yawn a bunch to negate the effects of the pressure and I was fine. Also, I could never really get a deep breath of air because as I breathed in, the helmet began to make a vacuum and I would have to stop to let it fill in with more air. Then two members of the mixed group of teens followed suit before a scuba diving man came down to be our guide. He handed all of us a piece of bread in the plastic bag which drew all of the fish to us. That was a lot of fun watching otherwise timid fish practically swarming us. There were metal guiding handrails in the ocean floor which I followed. The two kids followed behind me. It was very difficult to walk because the current was surprisingly strong and the helmets were quite heavy. We found it all incredibly enjoyable though. I had been diving for years and even to me it was a novelty. As I breathed, there was a constant loud whirring sound as the water put pressure on the oxygen tube. It was kind of annoying, but it meant that I was getting air, which was obviously good. That's why it was so scary when the sound suddenly stopped. I was confused, but it quickly came back on after about two or three seconds and I could breathe again. It happened one more time, and again, it came back on very quickly. I rationalized it by assuming that my tank had run empty and they were switching it to a different one. No big deal. I didn't understand how they would run out so quickly, but I didn't think too hard about it. It soon came back on and I could breathe, so no big deal. After about 10 minutes or so, I'm guessing I have no idea how long we were down there, the guide points at me and indicates that he wants me to climb over the railing. I was very confused, but... I did it after he made it very clear that that was what he wanted. It was kind of hard to see out any peripherals out of the mass, so it was easy to get lost. I looked back behind me to make sure that the teenagers saw where I went and didn't get lost. We made eye contact, so I assumed we were all good and then turned back around to follow the guide. He had me walking in a very small path between two corals. 
so I went very slowly to make sure that I didn't cut my legs up on them. It was hard due to the strong underwater current, my unwieldy helmet, and an occasional tug by the air tube as I pulled it taut. As I reached the guide, my air stopped again. I figured it was no big deal, like the previous two times, and continued on. I followed him for a bit, but it still didn't come on. Five seconds without oxygen, then ten. I started to get confused. Was this some kind of joke? If so, it wasn't funny at all. Fifteen seconds. I thought to myself, don't panic. They always tell you not to panic. But I panicked. I started taking quicker and quicker breaths, but I forced myself to stop that. Thanks to previous training, I knew that that was the worst thing I could do. I spun around to the guide and started pounding my fist on my chest. That was the sign for I can't breathe. He seemed to notice and started walking away. I could only hope that he was taking me to the boat. I thought maybe I should just try and shrug off the helmet and swim to the surface. I didn't know if I had enough air to make it. I didn't know if the boat was above me. I didn't want to hit my head. I didn't know if I could actually shrug it off and I didn't want to get the bends, so I figured it wouldn't be a good idea. 30 seconds. I started to notice that I was getting less and less oxygen with each breath. Water was starting to seep into my helmet. I had to look up to breathe with the little air that I had. I grabbed hold of the guide's arms so that I wouldn't lose him and also so that he would understand the gravity of the situation. I gave him quite the death grip. Forty seconds without oxygen, my lungs burned for air. I saw the ladder of the boat. I knew that all I had to do was make it there and I would be okay. I must have gotten some sort of adrenaline rush with the renewed hope because I almost forgot about my lack of air. I fumbled for the ladder for a few seconds. It was hard to tell distances through the helmet because it had a bit of a magnifying aspect to it before I grabbed it and started pulling myself up. As I broke the surface, air came rushing back into my helmet and I took a nice deep breath. Breathing had never felt better. It was definitely the scariest experience of my life, and I categorically would not recommend underwater walking to anyone. Being that I live on the coast of Mississippi, I have been on and around the water my entire life. I have countless stories of crazy experiences and bizarre happenings while being on the water. Most involve dealing with bad weather, such as lightning storms, water spouts, or rough seas. Those can be awesomely frightening, but the craziest things that I have seen have happened while working on fishing charter boats. But the one job that always sticks with me, and the one I would consider the biggest eye-opener, occurred back in 2010 when the Deepwater Horizon oil rig blew and began spewing oil into the Gulf of Mexico. BP, after realizing to a certain extent how vast the spill was, began a program that allowed owners of boats to register and participate in the cleanup efforts along the coastline. Those that were lucky enough to be accepted into the program sometimes took advantage of an awesome opportunity to do something good for the environment and made some serious money from it while, at the same time, preventing others from getting into the program who would have actually helped. That's somewhat mentioned later, but overall is a story for another discussion. 
So being that the water that I had basically grown up on was being destroyed, I couldn't just sit back and not do anything. I went and got hazmat certified. Then through certain contacts, I first started working on a 127-foot charter boat that would normally go out to the Chandelure Islands located off the coast of Louisiana for several days and nights and drop skiffs in the water where clients were guided around the islands to fish. Also, I would suggest if anyone has the opportunity to go out to these islands, please do. It's absolutely incredible there and the fishing is always superb. Anyway, back to the story. I was working on this boat for about two weeks before I was transferred to an offshore division that consisted of about a dozen boats. These boats were strictly personal fishing and commercial charter boats with the largest being 57 feet and an average price of around $100,000. A couple of the other boats had to be worth well over a million dollars conservatively. Our job was to leave at the crack of dawn and go out looking for oil or any marine life that may have been impacted by the spill. If we found crude oil, slicks, or anything else out of place or not normal, we'd log it, take pictures, and report it. For about a month, all we ever found were slicks. But one day, we went out about a hundred miles or so, and I'll never forget the sights or smells that day. The crude oil, which we called mud, because that is exactly what it looked like, was everywhere and ridiculously thick on average six inches and in some places up to one foot. It was like super thick putty and to be honest is actually really hard to describe. To put this into perspective though, if you've ever been mud riding or seen a truck get stuck in the mud, that's exactly what it was like to these boats but out on the water and a lot worse. Over time it destroyed the boat's hulls and caused significant damage to pretty much whatever it touched. We were the first group to find the crude and report it coming in that close to the shore. Also during this time we found a life jacket belonging to one of the poor guys who actually worked on the oil rig when it blew. Words honestly can't describe what that was like. It was a haunting moment to say the least. So we eventually get back to shore and that's when things started to change. The operation had now shifted to how are we going to clean this up and what are we going to do with it? It wasn't until this point when we all realized how serious this was, not only for the coastline but for the environment as a whole. The next morning at the dock we noticed that pallets of skimmers and absorbent materials had been dropped off. We were to use the skimmers to round up as much crude as we could, tie off the skimmers into a circle, and place the boom together with the crude inside. That would then be brought to the decontamination stations by another division who was assigned that job. A little reminder, our job originally was to just spot, find, take pictures and report back, not necessarily handle the oil if at all possible. But it got to the point where instead of myself being the only one who could handle the crude on my boat, everyone else working the boats eventually ended up in protective suits handling this toxic sludgy substance in 100 plus degree temperatures for 12 hours a day. A little side note. Each boat had to have at least one hazmat certified person on board at all times who was supposed to be the only person handling the crude. Also only four people were allowed to work on each boat in our division. We also ended up getting stranded twice by the shrimp boats who decided to call it a day, leaving us with no way to move the crude while also not allowing us to leave because we couldn't just leave the rounded up crude unattended. It was absolutely miserable. 
Nobody could have ever imagined what we were getting into. BP themselves had no idea what they were getting into, and their claims of being prepared were completely overshadowed by the fact that they truly did not know how to run and contain an operation of this magnitude day in and day out. This became a day-to-day -day challenge up until the point when my shady boss got caught being greedy, charging BP for every miscellaneous thing he bought which caused all of his boats to be shut down. During this time, both the employer and employees were making some serious money. What ruined it were the greedy jerks who just couldn't get enough. This, in turn, caused less boats that were actually doing it for the right reasons from being able to make a change out on the water. In total, we worked a little over three months, going out every day and seeing schools of dead fish, dead sea turtles, was disheartening to say the least. Although it was one of the most awful experiences of my life, I do feel like we made a difference out there, even if it was just a little. On one of our last trips, we were about twenty or so miles out past the barrier islands when we could see from a distance what looked like the water boiling and had a red, orange, and yellow color to it. When we got close, we realized it was a school of thousands of redfish and Drac Crevelli that stretched as far as we could see and was about a hundred or so yards wide. Being in the middle of that, surrounded by these fish, just cannot be described with words. It was incredible, and that was the one moment that gave us hope that what we were doing was not a waste and that we were in fact doing something worthwhile. Still to this day, it is the most incredible thing I'd ever seen on the water aside from the oil spill itself. Lastly, just to throw this out there, there are still tons of oil out in the Gulf regardless of what people say. It's just buried and on the seafloor due to the so-called dispersants that BP claimed would break the oil up. It still can be found on the island's beaches and marshes. The marine life is just now getting back to normal again in the past two years and... It's only going to get better as long as some nonsense like this doesn't happen again. The year 2001 marked the 60th anniversary of the sinking of the British HMS Hood and the German battleship the Bismarck. But 1941 was a faithful year for countless other ships that were lost at sea including the SSS Britannia, on which I happened to be a passenger. At the beginning of 1941, I was in Cornwall working on a small team providing power for a new station for cable and wireless being built in two tunnels in Perth Curnow. It was there that I was offered an extremely well-paying job that involved aiding in the construction of Tehran University all the way over in Iran. So in March of that year, I left the team to begin the journey that would take me from Britain to Bombay in India, and then on Basra in Iraq for the land journey to the Iranian capital. I had no idea that I would never make it that far. My wife saw me off from Euston Station in London. As there was a war on, I did not say I was embarking for Liverpool, as this would have clued her into the perilous nature of the voyage and worried her immensely. But she told me later that she saw it on the side of the train as it left. The SS Britannia was used as a troop ship and there were a lot of Navy, Army, and RAF personnel on board. But luckily for me, I was a first-class passenger. We sailed from Liverpool on the 11th of March 1941, 
bound for India via Sierra Leone and South Africa. We had an anti-submarine escort consisting of three destroyers and an armed merchant cruiser. The destroyers were stationed one ahead and one each to port and starboard of the convoy. The armed merchant cruiser was a large passenger liner that acted as our rear guard. I jotted down details of my journey, including my expenses in a small diary that I still have. The ship rolled quite a lot to start with, and I was seasick for a few days, but once the sea had calmed down a bit, I found the voyage much more pleasant. Then one day, I found that the Britannia had become separated from its armed escorts, and they were now nowhere to be seen. But we figured we were safe, as it was thought that we were sailing too fast for U-boats to catch up and attack. It was a Tuesday morning, the 25th of March, 1941. I had just taken a morning bath and was lying on my bunk trying to cool down. Never had I ventured outside of England before and I must admit I was having a terrible time adjusting to the heat. Suddenly, a series of huge booming sounds shattered the tranquility of a morning at sea. I looked out my porthole and splashes in the water. Something was falling into the water around the ship. I threw some clothes on quickly and made my way over to the starboard side. That's when I heard the Tianoi announcement. A voice echoed around the ship from the small, tiny speakers located on each deck. I'll never forget how terrified I was when I heard we had come under attack from a German raiding vessel. My fellow passengers were panicking as the military personnel aboard began to rush into action, screaming at us to take cover away from any outward-facing bulkheads. As we cowered under tables and prayed for our safety, we could hear the whistling of enemy shells as they flew over the ship. It was a sound I still hear in my nightmares. Our civilian liner had been reinforced with a small gun at the rear of the ship, and it brought us hope to hear them returning fire for a moment. But when the ship rocked under the force of a direct hit, our gun fired no more. We later heard they had taken the full force of the incoming shell with the entire gun crew killed in an instant. I can remember the officer, Rowlandson, racing to and fro, carrying the wounded to the first aid post, with more and more blood staining his uniform with every trip he made. I thought very highly of that man. After another devastating direct hit from the German warship, there was another announcement over the ship's tannoy, ordering us to abandon ship. We found some lifeboats damaged when we arrived on deck, which was very worrying, but we still managed to find one intact boat on the starboard aft. I inflated my life jacket, threw my overcoat into the lifeboat, then climbed down and got in. In theory, it was supposed to be women first, followed by first-class passengers. In reality, it was every man for himself. There were too many people climbing down the ladder and some of the crew were jumping overboard. We were forced to lower the lifeboat early to prevent it from being dragged down with the sinking vessel. So many of the crew had to climb down the ropes to reach safety. Some slipped and scorched their hands, causing horrific blistering to their palms and fingers. Two men were still climbing down the rope as we began to push the lifeboat away from the burning ship. The terror in their eyes was something I'll never forget. They must have thought they were doomed. All the occupants of the lifeboat called out to them to jump into the water and swim to us. Thank God we waited for them, as one of the men was a Sri Lankan doctor by the name of Das Gupta. May God bless him, for he treated the injured as best he could. As we rode away from the burning wreck of the Britannia, 
We watched as the German raiding ship closed in for the kill. She was flying the swastika. My heart burned with hatred as she fired shells below the waterline and sent the Britannia to the bottom of the ocean. After two days at sea, we found a waterlogged boat with four men in it. It suddenly tipped over and they managed to turn it over and got back in. This happened two or three times. The commander agreed to take them on board. The days at sea did affect some people. After a few days, one man put on his overcoat and threw himself overboard. He had lost his mind from the stress of the whole affair. The commander turned about to pick him up, but it was too late. His heavy clothing had dragged him down into the briny depths. We had sharks with us virtually all the time. They could smell the blood from the wounded and circled us with their fins protruding from the water. It was nerve-wracking. They swam right up next to the boat sometimes, and I could see their dead eyes staring up at us as they did. It was horrible thinking that certain death was only a few feet away at any given moment. After a few days without washing or access to toilets, one or two people suggested that we have a swim. They put oars across to hold on to and a couple at a time went over. We were told to be alert and looking back we must have been mad. I went in but I didn't swim. As soon as I did so, we were scared by a pod of whales which had these great whacking fins. The sharks were the worst but the sheer size of these whales was something to behold. They could have smashed our lifeboat to smithereens with one flick of their tail. I learned later that Officer Rowlandson was picked up off a raft by the Cabo de Hornos, a Spanish vessel, and he and the French Baroness, who was a passenger, persuaded the captain to continue searching. On Saturday the 29th of March, we saw the Cabo de Hornos lit up and put up a flare that was spotted by a lookout. We rowed towards the ship, which in turn made for our original position. When we met up, the lifeboat was going up and down with the swell. We climbed the rope ladder, but we flopped when we got on deck and had to be carried to tables. We wanted water, as this has been greatly rationed in the lifeboat. They then came round with sandwiches, but took them away when we had one each. It took a week or so to recover from the experiences, which was the worst of the war for me. But I thank God every single day that I survived as there were many poor souls who did not. In 1981, American mariner Stephen Callahan was taking part in a single-handed sailing race from Penzance in England to the Caribbean island nation of Antigua. Having studied as a naval architect, Callahan was an expert in the design and construction of all kinds of seaborne vessels, and had spent most of his life living on board racing and cruising ships. Yet not long into the race, bad luck and even worse weather had damaged or sunk many of the participants' boats, including Callahan's own self-designed Napoleon Solo. To his dismay, he was forced to abandon the race. But Callahan was not a quitter, not by any stretch of the imagination. He was determined to complete the voyage, even if the prize was no more than his own sense of satisfaction. And so, after making the necessary repairs to Napoleon Solo, he continued down the coast of Spain and Portugal and out into the Atlantic towards the Canary Islands. 
Several days later, Callahan found himself sailing in gale-force winds that had waves crashing over his small one-man boat. The storm continued into the night, with Callahan fighting to keep the vessel afloat. Suddenly, among the darkness and howling winds of the mid-Atlantic, something huge smashed into the side of the Napoleon Solo. The boat rocked into the ocean, a huge hole in a lower compartment causing the boat to fill with seawater. Callahan fought to keep his beloved boat from sinking, but it was no good. The small craft was overwhelmed by the crashing waves and strong winds. Callahan was forced to abandon ship, alone. When dawn broke, Callahan found himself drifting on the Atlantic in a small lifeboat, but he was determined to survive the disaster. Just before the Napoleon Solo had sank into the dark depths of the ocean, Callahan had made several trips back onto the boat to secure several pieces of crucial survival equipment, including a sleeping bag, emergency rations, a small spear gun, and a pair of solar stills that would produce roughly a pint of clean drinking water per day. Being the experienced sailor that he was, Callahan had determined that his raft was drifting steadily westward due to ocean currents and trade winds. Trade winds being the pattern of surface winds that have taken ships from Europe to the Americas for centuries. If he stayed alive, he knew he would eventually drift back into the realms of civilization, but staying alive would be no small feat. It wasn't long before Callahan had exhausted the meager food rations he had managed to salvage from Napoleon Solo. He couldn't find an alternate source of food. He would slowly and painfully die of starvation, alone and afraid in the open waters. But Callahan had no intention of dying in such a hideous manner. He took the spear gun that he had managed to grab from his sunken vessel and set to work. An interesting point about flotsam that drifts into the open ocean is that they often become small ecosystems in their own right. Barnacles that become attached to floating debris and the microscopic sea life they foster will in turn attract surface-feeding fish such as mahi-mahi or triggerfish. It wasn't long before Callahan found himself surrounded by an evolving ecosystem that would provide him with just enough food to stay alive. Callahan must have been delighted to discover that feeding himself was much easier than he had first anticipated. Entire schools of fish presented themselves to be speared, killed, and eaten as a valuable resource of protein. But wherever there are smaller fish, larger fish are inevitably drawn. Callahan awoke one day to hear a gentle lapping among the calm waters around him. He emerged from the canvas shelter of his life raft, expecting to see more of the mahi-mahi fish that were sustaining him so effectively. But it was something else, something which made his blood run. Circling the boat at almost perfect intervals were three large dorsal fins. Sharks were circling the life raft. They could smell him. As the sharks drew closer, Callahan could hear their sandpaper skin scratching against the thin nylon sides of the lifeboat. The noise must have been terrifying to him, a stark reminder that there were things in the ocean that were actively seeking to consume him, to end his life and render all his efforts pointless. What's more, there was every chance that the sharks would lose patience, attack the raft and cause irreparable damage to the only thing that was truly keeping Callahan alive. He would have to go on the offensive. 
Taking the spear gun in hand, Callahan must have been shaking with terror as he leaned over the side of the lifeboat and began jabbing at the circling sharks with the sharp point of the spear. But sharks are tough, and his spear gun was poorly made. It wasn't long before the rubber propulsion band and jagged spear tip had broken off, rendering the spear gun useless. But Callahan simply lashed a knife to the shaft of the broken spear and carried on his brave defense of his lifeboat. Yet, it wasn't the sharks that would become the biggest threat to Callahan's life, the largest of which would come from his own survival needs. On the 44th day drifting aboard his lifeboat, Callahan was fishing using his improvised spear when he caught a large mahi-mahi fish, but as it wildly flailed during its dying movements, the mahi-mahi caused the spear shaft to rip into the raft's bottom tubes, seriously compromising the lifeboat's buoyancy. Despite his best efforts, the hole wouldn't stay patched. In his endeavors to patch the boat up, Callahan often had to reach under the lifeboat itself, working with his arms underwater to reach repairs. This caused the sharks to return. Callahan was forced to balance defending his lifeboat with the essential repairs it required. The stress was too much for him, and he snapped. By his own admission, he descended into a fit of rage and grief, unable to accept that he would be torn apart in the open waters of the Atlantic by sharks that had been tracking him for weeks. But then it hit him. A small plastic fork in a Boy Scout mess kit he had managed to salvage could be stuffed into the nylon near the tear in the raft, then bent inward to seal the tear to secure the vessel. Too weak to attempt the idea at the time, Callahan tried for what little sleep he could manage in such a stressful situation, resounding himself to try it in the morning. It worked. It was the victory of a lifetime. He had come back from the brink of insanity and death to ensure that he would survive for that much longer. That was, until the solar stills on the life raft began to falter. Over the course of a few days, Callahan watched in horror as the one thing that kept him from dying of dehydration began to pack up and cease to function. By that time, he had only three small cans of fresh, purified water. His body and mind were shutting down. He began to hallucinate, feeling as if though all those people lost at sea were surrounding him, calling him to join them. He simply had no more fight left in him. Then, after 76 full days lost at sea, Callahan saw a small fishing vessel on the horizon. As it grew larger and larger, he deduced it was headed right towards him, attracted by the seabirds that circled over his lifeboat. The fish guts he had thrown back into the sea after successful catches has caused the small ecosystem around his lifeboat to grow exponentially, now including a small collection of whale and gulls. Where there are seabirds, there are fish, and where there are fish, there are fishermen. As the fishing boat pulled up alongside the raft, they must have been amazed to see the skeletal figure of Steve Callahan lying half-dead before their eyes. The men were from Guadeloupe. Callahan had made it to the Caribbean, just as he predicted. By the time the fishermen reached and rescued him from certain death, Callahan had lost a third of his body weight. He was so emaciated that it took six weeks before he could walk properly again. Bizarrely, he claimed he doesn't regret his 76 days spent alone in that lifeboat, drifting in the Atlantic Ocean. In fact, Callahan had been quoted as saying that he felt enlightened by what he went through, that it changed him for the better.
In fact, he once described the night sky, unpolluted by the bright lights of big cities, as being a view of heaven from a seat in hell. The most deadly shark attack in recorded history began on July 30, 1945. The USS Indianapolis, a Portland-class heavy cruiser of the United States Navy, was taking part in a top-secret mission of the utmost importance. It was tasked with carrying enriched uranium to the island of Tinian in the South Pacific, along with other parts required for the assembly of the world's first deployable atomic bomb. As history shows, the crew of the Indianapolis were successful in their mission, completing the delivery in record speeds that are unbroken even by modern naval vessels. However, as they sailed back towards Leyte for training before the invasion of Okinawa, tragedy struck. Just after midnight on July 30th, the Indianapolis was spotted by Japanese submarines. Without any escorts to defend her, the Indianapolis was a prime target and the Japanese closed in for the kill. The Indianapolis did not have sonar to detect submarines. They were completely unaware of the danger in which they found themselves. At exactly 15 past midnight, two Type 95 torpedoes smashed into the right-hand side of the vessel, instantly killing dozens of American sailors and causing obscene amounts of damage to the ship's structure. It took just 12 minutes of panic and terror for the ship to sink completely, taking down over 300 of the crew along with her. The surviving crew members, lacking life jackets and lifeboats, were set adrift among the waves in almost complete darkness. Many thought the worst was over, but their nightmare had only just begun. Naturally, the sailors floating among the debris were expecting to be rescued in a matter of hours, days at most but the horrible fact was that no one was coming to their rescue. Despite sending several emergency signals before the ship went down, the Navy had somehow lost track of the Indianapolis. Nothing was made of the fact that the ship failed to arrive at Leyte, and many of the emergency messages that were received by nearby ships and naval bases were completely ignored. Declassified records later showed that one such commander in the Philippines was drunk and had told his staff not to disturb him. Another wrongly assumed the SOS calls were some kind of Japanese trap. The roughly 900 men who had actually survived the torpedo attack were now exposed to a new, perhaps even deadlier danger. It was dawn when the survivors saw the first sharks in the waters around them. The pure carnage and chaos of the sinking had attracted hundreds of oceanic white tips and tiger sharks from miles around. Some were apparently as large as 15 foot long. It must have been absolutely terrifying for the survivors, seeing huge dorsal fins emerging from the water as the predators began to surround them, circling, picking out the weakest links, those too weak to struggle. At first, the sharks focused on the dead bodies floating on the water. Many men had died from exposure, salt poisoning or thirst, and it was these corpses that provided the easiest meals for the circling sharks. But soon the lifeless bodies among the survivors had been completely devoured by the hungry predators. It wasn't long before they turned their attentions towards the living. The survivors later reported that they were losing at least three or four men to the sharks every single day. At some point they counted 20 to 30 sharks in the water, 
their dorsal fins breaking the waves to form an almost impenetrable barrier around the surviving sailors. The sharks would often swim towards the survivors, bumping into them to test for signs of life. The sailors never knew exactly when the attacks would come, and this took a serious toll on their sanity. Men would kick and pound the water, screaming bloody murder in an attempt to deter the sharks from tacking. But this only served to attract more and more of the fishy fiends, as it mimicked the thrashing of a wounded sea creature that served as a natural dinner bell for the hungry beasts. Every so often a shark would lose patience and strike without mercy, rushing up from the briny depths to drag down a screaming survivor. Imagine it, hearing the man next to you let out an ear-splitting, blood-curdling scream before disappearing beneath the waves, never to be seen again. Some survivors recalled that the elements were perhaps just as deadly as the circling sharks. During the scorching heat of the daytime, men would pray for darkness, their faces blistering as the harsh Pacific sun beat down upon them, while at night, the water grew so cold that their teeth would chatter as hypothermia set in. Some would kick their legs and thrash their arms in futile attempts to keep warm, but again, this only mimicked the death throes of a wounded sea creature, making them a target for the circling sharks. As the floating sailors fought to survive, many of them succumbed to the horror of their experiences and began to lose their minds. Some men would even begin to hallucinate, seeing islands that weren't there or claiming that they had heard rescue planes searching in the skies above. One such surviving sailor recalls the heartbreaking moment that one of his shipmates finally lost his grip on sanity. The man claimed that he could see the Indianapolis floating in the water just a few feet below them, and that he could access the mess hall's stores of purified water. He made repeated trips beneath the surface, inviting his comrades to come join him in drinking the cool, fresh water that he had found, but the man was drinking pure salt water. He died shortly afterwards from the effects of saline poisoning. Then, on the fourth day of their harrowing survival, a Navy seaplane happened to be passing overhead when they spotted the groups of surviving sailors floating in the waters below. One of the aircraft's crew members leaned out of the central hatch, waving down at the men, and that's when the tears came, tears of pure relief and salvation. They were saved. But out of the crew of almost 1,200 soldiers, just 317 survived the ordeal. But for some, the horror, pain, and tragedy of the sinking would never end. Captain Charles McVeigh, commander of the Indianapolis, was one of the last to abandon the sinking ship. In November of 1945, he was court-martialed for failing to order his men to abandon ship in time, resulting in 300 or more sailors that sank with the ship to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Cleared of this charge, he was instead convicted of hazarding the ship, a naval term which describes the failure of a captain to properly maneuver his vessel to avoid the likelihood of a direct torpedo strike. Yet aspects of the trial were controversial, as even the commander of the Japanese sub that sank the ship said that zigzagging the Indianapolis wouldn't have made a bit of a difference and that he'd have always found a way to sink her. The disgraced captain was cleared of all charges, was reinstated to his position and retired as a rear admiral four years later in 1949. Yet while many of the Indianapolis survivors agreed that Captain McVeigh was not to blame for their ship sinking, the sentiment was not shared by some of the grieving families of the fallen soldiers. 
Captain McVeigh would often receive Christmas cards from the relatives of his dead crew members, but they did not have a remotely festive tone about them. They would say, Merry Christmas. Our family's holiday would have been a lot merrier if you hadn't have murdered my son, read one card that McVeigh had received as late as the 1960s. Despite being cleared of blame, Captain McVeigh never forgave himself for his failures as a commander, even if it was during the most brutal and decisive war that mankind has ever known. Eventually, in 1968, McVeigh picked up a small toy sailor that reminded him of his naval service, walked out onto his front lawn, and shot himself with the very same revolver that the Navy had issued to him upon entry into the service. He was 70 years old. Over 23 years later, the largest war in human history had senselessly claimed yet another life. Ever since man first took seaborne vessels out onto the oceans and seas that surround us, they have returned with tales of violent storms, sea monsters, and ghost ships. The open water captured mankind's imagination in ways comparable to the way outer space has today. The ocean represented the greater unknown, but perhaps mankind's most potent fear is just that, fear of the unknown. Perhaps the greatest maritime mystery of all time is that of the Mary Celeste, yet there is another, arguably just as curious event that took place mere decades ago, just after the end of the Second World War. It is a story filled with intrigue, terror, and death in the tropical waters of Southeast Asia. This is the tale of the Orang Madan. The Straits of Malacca is a narrow 550-mile stretch of water between the Malay Peninsula and the Indonesian island of Sumatra. As the main shipping channel between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, it is one of the most important shipping lanes in the world and is named after the Malacca Sultanate that ruled over the archipelago between the 15th and 16th centuries. In late 1947 and early 1948, a number of ships sailing through the straits began to pick up a series of unusual radio signals. Divided into two separate parts, sandwiching a cluster of indecipherable Morse code, the message read as follows, All officers are dead, including captain, lying in chat room and bridge. Possible that whole crew dead. I die. Despite their best efforts, radio operators found it impossible to determine the exact geographic source of the radio transmission. Nothing else was transmitted, just those two clipped but haunting sentences. Two American merchant vessels picked up the cryptic radio messages and were compelled to investigate. Sailors feel a certain solidarity for their own, but the mysterious messages must have piqued their curiosity even more and driven them to try to uncover the truth. With the help of British and Dutch listening posts, the coordinates of the vessels thought to be transmitting were triangulated. After some deduction, it was determined that there was only one ship that the messages could be transmitting from, a Dutch freighter named the SS Orang Madan. One of the American merchant ships by the name of the Silver Star was ordered to investigate the coordinates in question. Obviously, given the nature of the distress call, the captain of the Silver Star wasted no time in setting a new heading and steaming towards the potential rescue site. 
It took several hours of hard sailing, but eventually the lookout on board the Silver Star spotted the stricken ship in the distance. It was indeed the Orang Madan. No signs of life could be discerned when the rescue ship pulled up alongside her. The crew screamed and bellowed with all their might, trying to communicate with the unseen crew. After no response was received, it was evident that a boarding party would have to be organized in order to properly search the ship for survivors. From the very moment that the boarding party climbed onto the deck of the Orang Madan, it was clear that something was horribly wrong. It was soaked with blood. The entire upper deck of the ship more resembled a slaughterhouse than a sailing vessel. The broken dead bodies of the Dutch crew were strewn about the scene, their faces frozen in death's mass of pure terror, their arms horribly contorted as if though they'd spent their final moments trying to fight off some mystery assailant. Even the ship's dog was unable to escape the carnage, still snarling in death at whatever had massacred its master. Just as the emergency transmission had stated, the captain was also dead, lying face down in his private quarters in a pool of his own blood and guts. He too had an expression of complete and utter terror etched into his lifeless features, almost as if he'd been witness to some kind of unspeakable horror in his final moments of life. What little remained of the bridge officers and engineers was found in the wheelhouse and chart room. They had been completely torn apart and were only identifiable by the insignia on their gore-soaked shredded clothing. The ship's radio operator, the very same crew member who had sent out the distress call in the first place, was still sitting at his station, radio handset still in his grip. He was no exception. The same terrified expression preserved in the rigor mortis that had set in not long after death. As the boarding party searched the gore-drenched ghost ship, they began to notice several things that immediately struck them as odd or strange. Firstly, during the time the Orang Madan was found, it was summer in the southern hemisphere. Outside temperatures were in excess of 100 degrees, yet members of the boarding party noted that they had felt an ominous chill emanating from somewhere aboard the ship. Additionally, the condition of the corpses were scarily unusual, as they were decaying much faster than was expected, even in the tropics. What's more, aside from the mess made of the bridge officers, many of the victims displayed no visible wounds, nor had the ship suffered any damage associated with the hostile boarding party. The Straits of Malacca are known for Malay pirates that attack in small, fast speedboats equipped with grappling hooks and grenades, but there was no indication that piracy was to blame, since it is common practice for hostages and cargo to be taken, yet nothing was missing. When the boarding party completed their search and returned to the Silver Star, the captain made the quick decision to tow the Orang Madan back to port for salvaging purposes, but it was only once the ships had been tethered together that smoke was discovered below the Orang Madan's deck. This confused the men who had been part of the boarding party since they'd searched the boat intensely and no sign of fire was discovered. The crew of the Silver Star rushed into action, quickly severing the ropes keeping the two ships attached before disaster could strike. Just minutes after, the Orang Madan exploded with enough force to lift it clean out of the water before sinking to the bottom of the sea. The first official accounts of the incident were recorded by the United States Coast Guard in May 1952. In addition to the witness testimony which detailed the sorry state of the crew themselves, 
The published account added that they were all found with their frozen faces upturned to the sun, staring, as if in fear. The mouths were gaping open and the eyes staring. But many naval historians argue that the Orang Madan never even existed, and officially speaking, it didn't. At the same time the Orang Madan was supposed to have suffered its terrible fate in the Straits of Malacca, the Silver Star was operating under another name entirely, the Santa Juana. The Grace Line Shipping Company had bought rights to the ship and renamed it way after the late 1940s. In contrast, there are some that insist that Orang Madan was a real ship and insist that she was registered in Sumatra. Sumatra was a Dutch colony that formed part of what was known as the Dutch East Indies. In Indonesia, Orang means man, and Madan is the largest city in the island of Sumatra. Hence, the registered name, Orang Madan, literally means man from Madan. However, no records have been produced to prove this claim. Even the UK-based Lloyd Shipping registers in the Dictionary of Disasters at Sea, 1824-1962, has found no mention of the Orang Madan. But there may be a rational, albeit horrific, explanation for the lack of official records. A strong theory that attempts to explain the bizarre demise of the crew of the SS Orang Madan is related to biological weapons designed and manufactured by Japanese scientists, led by Japanese bacteriologist Shiro Ishii. Ishii was the head of Unit 731, a secret Japanese military facility that performed insidious experiments on mostly Chinese test subjects. These tests were even more sinister and insidious than the Nazi experiments at Auschwitz and included creating dangerous biological and chemical weapons to help Japan eliminate its enemies. It is believed that in the aftermath of the war, these biological and chemical weapons had to be shipped back to the United States to be studied. However, some high-tier government agent must have decided that these were best shipped secretively on civilian vessels in order to avoid possible interception by the Soviet KGB. There could have been an incident involving their secretive cargo, unleashing the full force of the nightmarish arsenal on the unsuspecting crew. The truth behind what really happened on the Orang Madan has been buried since the 1950s, and it is entirely possible that we will never, ever know the real story or if the ship ever existed in the first place. But it is not the first maritime mystery to capture the public's imagination, and doubtless, it will not be the last. It is Saturday morning in the affluent Australian suburb of Brighton, just over five miles from Melbourne city centre. Brighton is well known for its Dendy Street Beach, the location of 82 colorful beach boxes. 16-year-old Sam Cazenet has been playing soccer and his feet are sore, so he decides to take a walk down to the beach to soothe his aching feet. He spends half an hour in the cooling, shallow waters listening to music and feeling the pain in his swollen feet slowly ebb away. But as he wades out of the water to retrieve his sandals, he feels a strange sensation on his feet and ankles, almost like pins and needles. When he looks down, he sees they are covered in blood which drips onto the golden Australian sand. Sam walks back into the ocean hoping to wash away the blood and allow the salt water to disinfect the wound but on his return, he finds his legs will not stop bleeding. 
his father rushed him to the nearby Dandenong Hospital. As Sam sat patiently in the hospital waiting room he was driven to, blood continued to pool beneath his feet from the thousands of tiny pinprick wounds that dotted his legs and feet. To his family's horror, no one at the hospital could identify exactly what was the issue. Hospital staff contacted numerous toxicity and marine experts throughout the city of Melbourne, but none of them could shed any light on the nature of Sam's injuries. However, it is not just sharks that hunger for flesh in the waters around Australia, and one solid suggestion was made. Sea lice. Known by their Latin name as Lysianacid amphipods, sea lice are marine parasites that feed on the mucus, epidermal tissue, and blood of host marine fish. They are somewhat related to shrimp and prawns but are smaller in size, ranging from 6 to 13 millimeters. They are not venomous and their bites do not cause any lasting damage. Sam's injuries were consistent with those made by the small mite-like creatures when devouring organic tissue, but marine experts claimed that there was no way that such tiny organisms were responsible for such extensive tissue damage. Sam's father had an idea. That same day, he took a net down to the section of beach where Sam had suffered his mysterious wounds. In that net, he placed some slices of beefsteak. He lowered the thing into the water and waited. When he pulled the net out, he discovered something horrifying. Hundreds of tiny crustaceans were clinging to the raw meat, and they weren't just devouring the flesh, they were draining the raw steak of its blood. The marine experts were wrong. It was indeed sea lice that had attacked Sam's feet and legs, and they had done so in their thousands. Sam's father recorded the video footage of the lice devouring the slices of steak and took it straight to the hospital where his son was receiving treatment. But the details surrounding the manner in which these organisms feed is simply terrifying. In the creature's infancy, sea lice are not aggressive and produce food via a process that occurs inside the creature's own body. But once it finds a victim, the organism begins to grow and change as it accesses a valuable source of protein, its victim's flesh. Adult sea lice, especially females, are aggressive feeders, and in some cases feeding on blood in addition to tissue and mucus. This explains why the injuries to Sam's ankles and feet were so incredibly severe. The wounds stunned marine biologist Dr. Walker Smith. It's impossible he disturbed a feeding group, but they are generally not out there waiting to attack like piranhas. But Jeff Weir, the executive director of the Australian Dolphin Research Institute, said he too had suffered a similar experience. The marine biologist had taken part in a night dive and was taking pictures under a nearby pier when he found his forehead and cheeks were bleeding profusely when he surfaced. But he frankly admitted that Sam's case was the worst that he had seen in his entire career. These are very important little critters that live in the water, just like garden slaters in the garden that clean up the breaking down debris. These things are a really important part of the ecosystem. It's a bit annoying for the young lad. He must have been there for quite a while and not realizing he's getting nipped away. It's not life-threatening, but it's a great tale to tell. But before you go thinking you're safe if you don't live down under, you might want to hear this. A series of itchy experiences down in the Virginian beach area had caused a panic among frightened locals and tourists alike over a so-called sea lice. 
Beachgoers posted numerous social media updates over the course of a week describing tiny bites and itching in bathing suits and all over their arms and legs. Many rushed from water to the closest shower but were horrified to report that the itching lasted longer. Many rushed to local hospitals, terrified they were contracting something horrible, some unknown disease. But thankfully the tiny creatures responsible for the itching, commonly referred to as sea lice, aren't actually lice at all. They're actually blue crab larvae, one day destined to grow fat and large, potentially winding up on a plate at your favorite crab feast. The Virginia Aquarium's Vice President of Education, Christopher Witherspoon, tells us the so-called sea lice are a larval form of the blue crab called the megalops. It looks like an alien lobster and its pincers are just big enough to irritate people's skin and maybe cause a rash, he explained. Getting sea lice in your bathing suit is uncomfortable but harmless. Encounters with the larvae are expected around summertime, mainly due to the timing of the blue crab's life cycle. In late spring, eggs hatch at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay before surface currents push the tiny larvae out into the ocean where they transform into megalopi. Those in turn sink to the bottom of the ocean and ride bottom currents back into the bay where they need to be to develop into young crabs. Megalopi are, not to be confused with sand fleas, tiny crustaceans that live in the beach sand and also make vacationers itchy. Witherspoon says we should welcome crab larvae back to the bay, not fear them. He went on to explain that it takes millions upon millions of larvae for enough to survive the journey and avoid predators for us to have adult blue crabs to harvest. Without megalopi appearing along shores and in the bay each summer, there would be no blue crabs here. Sam Cazenet's encounter with the flesh-eating parasites may have been an incredibly rare occurrence, but it illustrates just how little we know about what lurks beneath the waves. How we well and truly roll the dice when venturing into unknown waters. How the planet's oceans are just as brutal and nightmarish as the densest jungles or driest deserts. Hey friends, thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and click that notification bell to be alerted of all future narrations. If you got a story, be sure to submit them to my subreddit, r Let's Read Official, and give and receive feedback from the community, and maybe even hear your story featured on the next video. And join my Discord to interact with me and other listeners directly. And if you want to support me even more, grab early access to all future narrations for just $1 a month on Patreon, and maybe even pick up some Let's Read merchandise on Spreadshirt. And check out the Let's Read podcasts, where you can hear all these stories in long compilation form and save huge on data, located on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Links in the bio. Thanks so much, friends, and I'll see you again soon.